Korean victory in the Fatherland Liberation War, 70 years on. Our people have inherited the heroic spirit of the generation who defeated the US-led gang in 1953, a de facto confrontation between the rifle and the atomic bomb. As our party was unable this year to hold our annual anti-imperialist barbecue, we held instead an online meeting celebrating the Korean victory in the Fatherland Liberation War in 1953, attended by more than 1,200 online. Those who missed the meeting can catch up with it on Proletarian TV. On this, the 70th anniversary of the outbreak of the Korean War, we also reproduce this article, first published by the DPRK's Institute for Disarmament and Peace, with the aim of keeping alive the memory of the Korean people's heroic struggle, as a result of which they, with the support of the international communist movement, became the first to defeat the mighty US imperialism in war, despite the US having 16 allied countries fighting on its side and to frustrate its nefarious aims. Withdrawal of the US's hostile policy towards the DPRK, an indispensable prerequisite for peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula. Paper of the Institute for Disarmament and Peace, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Seventy years have elapsed since the bursts of gunfire of war were heard on this land. The Korean War forced by the United States inflicting painful scars and tremendous human and material losses upon the Korean people. Continuing even today is the suffering of national division, whereby kinsfolk of the same blood are forced to live apart. As the Korean nation still suffers from the heart-rending wounds of war, it is stronger than any other nation in respect of its cherished desire to live on a peaceful land without war and has long persevered in its efforts to realise that desire, but in vain. Its underlying cause is the sinister design, that is, the USA's hostile policy towards the DPRK. The Institute for Disarmament and Peace, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the DPRK, releases this paper with a view to laying bare before the whole world the truth behind the Korean War that was ignited by the US in the 1950s of the last century, and to revealing the aggressive and predatory nature of the US's hostile policy towards the DPRK, which imposes immeasurable misfortune and pain on the entire Korean nation. The Korean War was an inevitable product of the US's hostile policy towards the DPRK. The Korean War was a criminal war of aggression that was systematically prepared and provoked by the US under thoroughgoing plans to stifle the DPRK by force of arms and to hold in its hands Asia and the rest of the world. Even though the US continues to fabricate all sorts of tricky information designed to cover up its aggressive crimes of having provoked the Korean War, the truth of history can neither be covered up nor obliterated. Since more than 100 years and several decades ago, the US adopted as its state policy to invade and dominate Korea, a gateway to the Asian continent, and desperately pursued a hostile policy towards Korea for its implementation. US ruling circles presented their proposal on opening Korea to the US Congress in February 1845 and perpetrated a series of incidents such as the intrusions of a General Sherman in 1866, the USS Shenandoah and USS China respectively in 1868 and a large-scale armed invasion in 1871. After signing the Taft-Katsura Agreement with Japan in 1905, the US backed the occupation and colonial rule by Japan over Korea while systematically attempting to turn the country into its own eventual colony. By the end of World War II, the USA had perfected its plan to occupy our country. In the letter sent in March 1951 to Joseph Martin, 
Senator of the U.S. Congress, MacArthur, the then commander of the U.S. forces in the Far East, wrote, If we lose this war to communism in Asia, the fall of Europe is inevitable. His view was that, by conquering all of Korea, we can cut into pieces the one and only supply line connecting Soviet Siberia itself and control the whole area between Vladivostok and Singapore. Nothing would then be beyond the reach of our power. Quoted in Herschel Meyer, Modern History of the United States, Kyoto, page 148. In a word, the US regarded Korea as a dagger to cut off a lump of meat which meant Asia. The Korean War was badly needed by the American munitions and monopolies, which had been fattened by the piles of money they had amassed during World War II. The economic crisis, which had started in the US at the end of 1948, became more acute by 1949. Industrial production plummeted by 15% compared with the previous year. Prices nosedived and investment in machinery and equipment reduced sharply, resulting in the bankruptcy of over 4,600 companies and an increase in unemployment to 6 million during the first half of 1949 alone. The revenue of US monopolies shrank from $36.6 billion to $28.4 billion during the period between September 1948 and March 1949. Soon after the Korean War broke out, American publications headlined, The business called Korea revived the economy, and the outbreak of the Korean War exercised the evil of recession that had been agonising the American commerce since the end of the World War II. This indicates that a special recipe, i.e. a war, was needed by the US at that time in order to rid itself of an economic crisis. This is how the US chose Korea as part of its strategy for world hegemony as a unique point of tangency between the American military system and the Asian mainland, an ideological battleground, a testing ground for a showdown aimed at realising world domination and also as the only way to get out of the economic crisis that followed World War II. The true aggressive colours of the US, which took the lead in preparing for the Korean War, are also clearly revealed by working out the war scenario. The plan of the US to occupy Far East was divided into three phases. The first phase was to begin with the Korean War, A, and in the second phase, the war was to be expanded into China, B, while in the final phase, Siberia was to be occupied, C. The start of the operation was slated for 1949. A Japanese magazine dated September 1964 disclosed the story behind the scenes by citing a former colonel of the Imperial Japanese Army, who had been involved in this conspiracy, as follows. The operation was divided into three phases. First, ten divisions comprising the US Army and South Korean Army are deployed along the 38th parallel and two operation zones, i.e. the East Zone and the West Zone, are formed. The West Front directly advances to Pyongyang, and the landing operation at northern Pyongyang with the cooperation of the Navy and Air Forces is conducted in parallel with it. The East Front chooses Yangdok as its left flank and ensures the connection between Pyongyang and Wonsan, and its right flank will march directly towards Wonsan. Here again, a landing operation at northern Wonsan is conducted by a naval unit. These two fronts advance together up to River Amnok and break through the Sino-Korean border. This was the first phase of the operation and a detailed plan based on data provided by the former Japanese army was worked out. Next, the operation enters the second phase the moment the Sino-Korean border is broken through, 
followed by participation of the Japanese Army and the United States Nations Forces. This was the sequence. With a, with a thoroughgoing plan and concrete preparation, the US ignited the Korean War by inciting the South Korean puppet army at 4am on 25th of June 1950. On the eve of the war, Brigadier General William Lynn Roberts, head of the US Military Advisory Group in South Korea, gabbled, We have chosen the 25th, and this explains our prudence. It is Sunday. It's the Sabbath for both the United States and South Korea, Christian states. No one will believe we have started a war on Sunday. In short, it is to make people believe that we are not the first to open a war. After the provocation of the Korean War, the US manoeuvred cunningly to cover up its true colours as the aggressor. On 25th June, the US requested a United Nations Security Council meeting, forging UNSC Resolution 82, which designated the DPRK as aggressor. On 7th of July, it forged yet another UNSC Resolution 84, which recommended making Allied forces available to a unified command order under the US and asked the US to designate its commander, authorising the use of a UN flag. The DPRK was thus branded the provoker of the war, and the war of the Korean people to liberate their fatherland was labelled an aggression, while United Nations forces made their appearance a belligerent party to the war. Several former UN Secretary Generals have officially admitted that the UN command was not a UN-controlled organ, but purely a war tool of the US. In June 1994, then UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali admitted the UNSC did not establish the Unified Command as a subsidiary organ under its control, and it came to be placed under the authority of the US. Letter from the UN Secretary General to the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the DPRK, 24th June 1994. In December 1998, then UN Secretary General Kofi Annan said, None of my predecessors have granted any authorization to any state to make the use of a name of the UN, referring to the forces and commands dispatched by the US to the Korean War. Letter from the UN Secretary General to the President of the Presidium of the Supreme People's Assembly of the DPRK, 21st December 1998. On 27th of July 2004 and 6th of March 2006, UN spokespersons confirmed that the UN command, despite its name, is not the army of the UN, but a US-led force. It is not the UN, but the US, which has the power to appoint the UN commander. It is not the UN, but the US administration, which has absolute power to decide on either a reduction or an increase in those US forces in South Korea who wear the UN force helmets. Despite all these facts, the UN flag is still brazenly flying in Panmunjom, bringing shame on the United States. The fiercest war ended in the miraculous victory of the heroic Korean people, who were under the leadership of President Kim Il-sung, but the human and material losses suffered by our nation were tremendous. The terrible atrocities and massacres perpetrated by the US imperialists in particular cannot be detailed in this short paper. The US imperialists, who had wormed into Sinchon County in October 1950, committed all kinds of atrocities of massacre against 35,380 innocent residents, equivalent to 25% of the country, county's population, in 50-plus days. They burned the innocent residents to death, drowned them in reservoir, shot to death, burnt them on the firewood, ripped apart the limbs of living persons and cut off the abdomens of pregnant women. 
These facts lay bare before the world that the US imperialists are no less than wild beasts and bloodthirsty wolves in human shape. Even according to official statistics, the US imperialists during the Korean War killed more than 1.23 million people in the northern half of the Republic and more than 1.24 million people in South Korea and attempted to eliminate our nation by the use of chemical and biological weapons. In 1951, an investigation team of the Women's International Democratic Federation, which investigated the atrocities of the imperialists on the site, wrote in its report, The massacres and tortures committed by the US troops in the areas of their temporary occupation are more atrocious than those committed by Hitler's Nazis in Europe. Openly clamouring that they would wipe out 78 cities and towns of North Korea from the map and leave nothing intact, the US throughout the Korean War dropped almost 600,000 tonnes of bombs and napalm on the northern half of the Republic, 3.7 times the amount of bombs dropped on the Japanese mainland during the Pacific War. Severely destroyed, owing to their atrocities, were 50,941 factories and enterprises, 28,632 school buildings, 4,534 medical buildings, including hospitals and clinics, 579 scientific research buildings, 8,163 media and cultural buildings, 2,077,226 homes, moreover 563,755 hectares of farming land was damaged and the total reduced area of paddy on non-paddy fields amounted to 155,500 hectares. When the war was over there was nothing left but ashes and the US bragged that Korea would not recover even after 100 years. All these facts eloquently show that the US imperialists were the provokers of the Korean War and the sworn enemy of the Korean people, and prove that peace will never settle on the Korean peninsula as long as the US's hostile policy towards the DPRK persists. Criminal and Systematic Abolition of the Armistice Agreement the US's hostile manoeuvres towards the DPRK after the Korean War are characterised by pursuit of the permanent division of the Korean Peninsula and by ceaseless nuclear threats and blackmail against the DPRK. The Korean War, which War Chief President Harry S. Truman described as no less than the World War III, came to a pause with the conclusion of the Armistice Agreement, but this meant neither the end of the war nor the conclusion of a peace agreement. At the time of its conclusion, the armistice constituted no more than a transitional step aimed at withdrawing all foreign troops from the Korean Peninsula and establishing lasting peace. No sooner had the armistice agreement been signed than the US drove the situation of the Korean Peninsula to the brink of war once more, in flagrant violation of the agreement, driven by the wild ambition to make our people its slaves by any means and to seize the whole of Peninsula. Around 10.20pm on 27th of July 1953, Less than half an hour after the armistice agreement came into force, the US Army fired several machine gun shots towards our side's area, continuing to fire shells over the border at intervals of tens of minutes for several hours. In disregard of the paragraph 10, article 1 of the armistice agreement, which stipulates that only pistols and rifles can be carried in the demilitarized zone, DMZ, including in the Joint Secretary Area, JSA, the US Army introduced not only automatic rifles and machine guns, but also cannons, tanks, flamethrowers, helicopters and more, 
and opened gunfire toward our sides, post and guardsmen indiscriminately almost every day. Since 1968, the US Army has mobilized fully armed troops to repeat the military operations it has conducted in the areas along the 38th parallel, including Mount Songak, just before the provocation of the 25th June War. The US Army has committed innumerable acts of provocation in the Panmunjom JSA, including Panmunjom incident of 18th August 1976 and the incident of gunfire towards our security personnel on 23rd November 1984. The US nullified paragraph 60, article 4 of the Armistice Agreement, which envisages the withdrawal of all foreign forces from Korea and the peaceful settlement of the Korean question. Paragraph 60 of the Armistice Agreement stipulated that within three months after the Armistice Agreement becomes effective, a political conference of a higher level is to be held to negotiate the questions of the withdrawal of all foreign forces from the Korean Peninsula and the ways for peaceful settlement of the Korean question. At the preparatory talks for a political conference that were convened at Panmunjom on 26th of October 1953, the US laid artificial obstacles only clinging to the obstructive maneuvers and on 12 December of the same year it unilaterally withdrew from the meeting room. Thus the talks didn't proceed to the main conference but was ruptured in the preparatory stage. Afterwards the Geneva conference was convened for a peaceful settlement of the Korean question but the US deliberately disrupted the conference. On the 8th of August 1953 the US staged the ceremony of signing of what is called a mutual defense treaty with South Korea in order to legitimize permanent stationing of US trip troops in South Korea. On the 2nd of January 1953, the then chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff made reckless remarks that the US Army would station for an indefinite period in South Korea which is of great strategic significance in its world hegemony and that it would continue to hinder the peaceful coordination of the Korean question. After the UN Resolution on Dissolution of the UN Command for the Durable Peace on the Korean Peninsula was adopted at the 30th session of the UN General Assembly in November 1975, the US clung more openly to its scheme for the permanent occupation by cooking up the US-South Korea Combined Forces Command. In early March 2006, the US worked out the plan and got down to its implementation for expanding and reorganizing the nominal UN command into a permanent organization of multinational forces by way of increasing the role of belligerent states of the Korean War and permitting them to take part not only in the formation of emergency and operational plans but also in detailed activities. Thus, the process for converting the arms disagreement into a peace agreement miscarried, and the unstable state of neither war nor peace continues on the Korean Peninsula. In August 1953, the US went totally against paragraph 13b, article 2 of the Armistice Agreement, and unilaterally drew the northern limit line in the West Sea of Korea, which is an act of illegal and outrageous crime thereby transforming its surrounding areas into the world's most dangerous hotspot. It is also attempting in every way to impose a blockade on our country under the pretext of a proliferation security initiative running counter to paragraph 15, article 2, which prohibits any kind of blockade against the DPRK. The US nullified paragraph 13d, article 2 of the Armistice Agreement, which called for a complete cessation of introduction of all military 
material from outside of the Korean territory and turned South Korea into a world's weapons exhibition hall. The US incessantly threatened and blackmailed the inspection teams of the Neutral Nations Supervisory Commission, which were mandated according to paragraph 13c, article 2 of the Armistice Agreement to supervise and inspect the introductions of military material from outside of the Korean territory and eventually expelled them from South Korea in 1956, thereby paralysing their inspection functions. In May 1957, the then U.S. Secretary of State openly stated in public that the U.S. should consider sending more modern and effective weapons to South Korea. And on 21st of June the same year, the U.S. Army side that attended the 75th meeting of the Military Armistice Commission, MAC, announced its unilateral abrogation of paragraph 13D of the Armistice Agreement. The U.S. shipped into South Korea more than 1,000 nuclear weapons during the period between the late 1950s and the 1980s. As a result, South Korea was converted into the most highly deployed area of nuclear weapons in the world, their number being over four times that of NATO member states, and into an advanced outpost for outbreak of a nuclear war. The US also formalised the provision of nuclear umbrella to South Korea at the 14th session of the US-South Korea Annual Security Consultative Meeting held in March 1982. At the dawn of the 21st century, the US designated our country as a target for preemptive nuclear strike in its nuclear posture review and shipped into South Korea for warfare equipment worth an astronomical amount of money along with nuclear weaponry. The US has deployed in South Korea all sorts of ultra-modern offensive arms such as F-117 stealth fighters, F-15 and F-16 fighters, Shadow 200 tactical reconnaissance drones, Apaches, new type Patriot missiles, striker armoured vehicles, guided missile destroyers, Abrams M1 to A2 tanks, AT-ACMS ground-to-ground missiles, mine removing armour-protected MRAP special vehicles, and even introduced the TAD system. Most recently, it has introduced F-35A stealth fighters, Global Hawk high-altitude reconnaissance drones, AWACS, and many other ultra-modern offensive weapons, thus literally transforming South Korea into a showcase for its lethal weapons industry. The US went to the length of abolishing both the Armistice Commission and the Neutral Nation Supervisory Commission, NNSC, the only remaining supervisory bodies tasked with implementing the Armistice Agreement in Korea. In the 1950s, it dissolved the Neutral Nations inspection teams under the NNSC and the Joint Observer Team under the Military Armistice Commission, which had been provided for by paragraph 23, article 2 of the Armistice Agreement. On the 25th of March 1991, the US went through the farce of designating as its senior military representative to the MAC, a puppet army officer of South Korea, which is not a signatory to the Armistice Agreement and therefore does not have any qualifications or authority to handle issues relating to it. With this, the MAC, which had functioned for more than four decades, ceased to exist and the NNSC2, having lost its counterpart, withered away. The US also abrogated the preamble and paragraph 12 of the Armistice Agreement, which provides for a complete cessation of hostilities and of all acts of armed force in Korea. Since 1954, when it staged Operation Focus Lens, 
its first joint military exercise with South Korea, the US has conducted endless war drills, including operations Freedom Bolt, Team Spirit, Ulji Focus Lens, Joint Wartime Reinforcement Exercise, Key Resolve, Foul Eagle and Ulji Freedom Guardian. These exercises far exceeded any war games taking place in other parts of the world, both in terms of frequency and scope. The entirety of the US's strategic nuclear triad, nuclear aircraft carriers, nuclear submarines and nuclear strategic bombers has been mobilised in these nuclear war drills aimed at the DPRK. The nature of the exercises has become steadily more aggressive and provocative. Today, the stated aim of such masquerades is openly described as a decapitation operation, precision strike, invasion of Pyongyang, etc., throwing off both the annual and defensive veneers. The US further developed its preemptive nuclear strike scenarios through Opland 5026, Opland 5027, Opland 5029, Opland 5030, Opland 5012, Opland 5015, Opland 8044, Opland 8022, Opland 8010, the tailored deterrent strategy, and Opland 4D. As is evident from the above, the US left no stone unturned in abrogating each and every article and paragraph of the five articles and 63 paragraphs of the Armistice Agreement. In truth, that agreement has been dumped like a scrap of waste paper. Owing to the hostile policy of the US and its endless nuclear threats and blackmail towards the DPRK, the Korean Peninsula has been turned into the world's hottest spot where nuclear war could be sparked at any moment. If we in the South have not considerably strengthened our self-defensive deterrence, the Korean Peninsula could have fallen into the ravages of war more than a hundred times and a catastrophic World World War would have been started. Strengthening the war deterrent is our final option. It is 67 years since the gunfire of war ceased on this land, but there is one thing that has not ceased at all, the hostile policy of the USA towards the DPRK. The United States is becoming daily more open about its desire to annihilate the DPRK by force and gain military dominance in the Asia-Pacific region, and thus, by extension, to realise its ambition for world hegemony at any cost. The government of the DPRK has put forward a number of peace proposals and initiatives over the decades, including the pro proposal in the 1970s for concluding a DPRK-US peace agreement and the proposal in the 1990s for establishing a new peace mechanism, all of which were rejected outright by the US. In the second half of the 1990s, four party talks were held involving the DPRK, the US, China and South Korea, aimed at establishing a durable peace mechanism on the Korean Peninsula. Owing to the insincere attitude of the US, however, no fruit was produced by this initiative. In the new century, we put forward a proposal aimed at formally ending the war, offering to convene a meeting at the earliest possible date so as to replace the armistice agreement with a peace agreement by 2010, the 60th anniversary of the outbreak of the Korean War. Once again, the United States turned down these proposals. Instead, the US openly designated our country as part of an axis of evil, an outpost of tyranny, and a target for a preemptive nuclear strike, illegally labelling us as a sponsor of terrorism, a site of a proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, accusing us of human rights abuse, money laundering, counterfeiting, drug trafficking, and so on in order to justify its hostile policy towards the DPRK. 
But US did not even hesitate to make reckless remarks about the total destruction of a DPRK running amok in order to overturn our ideology and system. The hostile policy of the US towards the DPRK is well evidenced by the fact that it openly threatened us with the use of nuclear weapons. The US had declared that it would drop atomic bombs on the DPRK during the Korean War and once again gradually escalated its nuclear threats against us after the conclusion of the Armistice Agreement. When its armed spy ship Pueblo was captured in January 1968, the US reviewed the option of a nuclear attack against us and when the large size reconnaissance plane EC-121 was shot down in our territorial airspace in April 1969, it kept its nuke-mounted tactical bombers on emergency standby while the then US President Richard Nixon made reckless remarks about having decided to approve the use of atomic bombs in case North Korea struck back. Such public nuclear threats and blackmail but the US towards the DPRK are only the visible tip of a huge iceberg. The war in Kosovo, triggered by the US from March to June 1999, was a war of injustice, simulating a second Korean war. The former Yugoslavia served as the US test ground for a new Korean war, because the country has natural and geographical conditions similar to the Korean peninsula, and its distance from the US mainland is almost the same as the distance between the US mainland and the Korean peninsula. The fact that the US together with NATO conducted ceaseless and indiscriminate air raids of zero operational significance and ruthlessly used depleted uranium bombs and weapons of mass destructions that spread toxic bacteria serve as an oblique illustration of a second Korean war being plotted by the US. With the turn of a new millennium, the US's nuclear threats against the DPRK became ever more blatant. On the 6th of June 2001, President George Bush launched a so-called North Korea policy statement in which he claimed that the US would wield its military strength, including nuclear weapons, if the DPRK did not accept the US demand for nuclear inspections, the suspension of missile launches and development, and a reduction in the DPRK's store of conventional weapons. In 2002, the US stated that it could be the first to use nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula and that it would develop small nuclear bunker busters to this end, thereby making a preemptive nuclear strike against the DPRK a fait accompli. In 2009, at the 41st session of the US-South Korea Annual Security Consultative Meeting, the US announced in writing that it would provide extended de deterrence for South Korea by means of a nuclear umbrella conventional strike capabilities and a missile defence system. American nuclear threats against the DPRK peaked, reached a peak in 2017. The US once more pushed the Korean Peninsula to the threshold of nuclear war by deploying nuclear strategic assets and the latest warfare equipment in South Korea and its surrounding areas. Weaponry included the super-large nuclear-powered aircraft carriers Carl Vinson and Ronald Reagan B-1B, B-52H and B-2A nuclear strategic bombers and the nuclear-powered submarines Columbus, Tucson and Michigan. The US's hostile policy and nuclear threats toward the DPRK became even more aggressive after the DPRK-US summit held in Singapore with the aim of establishing a new bilateral relationship and building a lasting and durable peace mechanism on the Korean Peninsula. Despite the fact that we voluntarily took crucial and meaningful initiatives, including the discontinuation of nuclear tests and ICBM test fire, 
for the sake of building mutual confidence in the talks, the US, far from responding to these initiatives with corresponding measures, conducted tens of joint military drills, which its president had personally promised to stop, and threatened the DPRK militarily, shipping ultra-modern warfare equipment into South Korea. The US carried out a test simulating the interception of one of our intercontinental ballistic missiles and followed this with test launches of all kinds of missiles, including the ICBM Minuteman III, the SLBM Trident, 2D5, thus maximising its nuclear threats against us. Even in the midst of the unprecedented crisis triggered by COVID-19, the US's military threats against us have not abated. If anything, they have increased, with the US and South Korea staging a joint air drill and Marine Corps joint landing drill this April. No other nation on the planet has suffered from nuclear threats so directly or for so long as the Korean nation, and to our people, such nuclear threats are not an abstract concept, but our actual and concrete experience. Our nation suffered directly from the US nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in which our people were the second largest victim after the Japanese people. To our people who had personally experienced the horrible ravages of a nuclear bomb, the US's atomic threats were a real nightmare during the Korean War and gave rise to a procession of A-bomb refugees streaming from the north to the south of the Korean Peninsula as the war was being waged. Many families who couldn't move together sent only their husbands or sons to the south in the hope of carrying on their family lines. This is how the separated families of millions of people came into being and they are still living separately in the north and south of the Korean Peninsula and abroad. The DPRK government has made every possible effort to put an end to the US's nuclear threat, but both through dialogue and by making recourse to international law, but all its efforts have been in vain. The only option left was to counter nuclear with nuclear. In fact, the United States persistently pushed us into possessing nuclear weapons. This brought to an end the nuclear imbalance in Northeast Asia, where only the DPRK had been left without nukes, while every other country had been equipped with nuclear weapons or was projected by a nuclear umbrella. All this speaks clearly to the fact that the root cause of all problems on the Korean Peninsula is the USS's hostile policy and nuclear threat towards the DPRK. The dark cloud of nuclear war can never be cleared away from the Korean Peninsula, unless the US withdraws the hostile policy that treats the DPRK as an enemy and a belligerent state. The US might have its own motivations for doggedly persisting in this hostility and belligerence, however. While the Far Eastern strategy of the US has shifted over the years in line with the Nixon Doctrine, the Neo-Pacific Doctrine, the Pivot to Asia-Pacific Strategy and the Indo-Pacific Strategy, the environment surrounding the ceasefire on the Korean Peninsula was consistently abused in order to militarily deter any potential adversaries of the US in the region. In recent years, for example, the US deployed its tarred high-altitude missile defence system in South Korea under the pretext of a missile threat from us, thus enabling it to gain an incredibly close watch over northeastern China and the far east of Russia. Meanwhile, the US is openly demonstrating its evil intention to deploy intermediate-range missiles in our surrounding areas on the grounds that the INF Treaty has become null and void. As a result, it is now only a matter of time before a nuclear arms race is set off around the Korean Peninsula as US moves to contain China and Russia militarily grow ever more pronounced. Under this circumstance, there is no guarantee that a second 25th of June 
won't be launched in the case, but US interests coincide with those of 70 years ago. A far departure from the official line that the US wants to keep the peace on the Korean Peninsula. To our people who were subjected to disastrous disturbances of war on this land owing to US aggression, a strong war deterrent for national defence has become indispensable. It is an indisputable, open and above-board exercise of a legitimate right to self-defence that we further consolidate our war deterrent, which is aimed at defending our national security and guaranteeing our development. The 70-year-long history of the DPRK-US confrontation graphically illustrates that no self-restraint or broad-mindedness could serve to contain the US's high-handed arbitrariness, aggression and war manoeuvres but would in fact only encourage the US to go further. It is despicable double-dealing for the US to talk about dialogue while maximising its attempts to oppress the DPRK politically, economically and militarily. It's repeated harping like an automatic responding machine on denuclearization betrays only its brigandish intention to disarm us and open up the way to another aggressive war. At the fourth enlarged meeting of the 7th Central Military Commission of the Workers' Party of Korea, Comrade Kim Jong-un, Chairman of the State Affairs Commission of the DPRK, set forth new policies to further bolster our national nuclear war deterrent and to put our strategic force on full alert in accordance with our overall need to build and develop the state's armed forces. In the present situation, in which the US, the world's biggest nuclear power and only actual user of nuclear weapons, clings to the, this, this pathological and inveterately hostile policy, while indulging in the most extreme nuclear threats and blackmail, we will continue to further build up our strength so as to contain these persistent threats. We will never shrink from the road we have chosen. Nobody in this world can block the victorious advance of our people and army, who have inherited the heroic spirit and metal of the great generation of victors who defeated the US-led gang of imperialism of the Fatherland Liberation War in a de facto confrontation between the rifle and the atomic bomb. Pyongyang, 25th of June. <laughs>